Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Please join me, Donna Bear Stein, in welcoming tonight's very special Teferit Talk Show guest, award-winning author and creative writing professor, Jessica Treadway. I am especially delighted to have Jessica join us on the launch of her second novel, Lacey Eye, which has just been published by Grand Central Publishing of the Hatchet Book Group. Jessica's story collection, Please Come Back to Me, received the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction and was published by the University of Georgia Press in 2010. Her previous books are Absent Without Leave and Other Stories, published by Delphinium Books and a novel and Give You Peace from Macmillan. A professor at Emerson College in Boston, Jessica has received grants from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Massachusetts Cultural Foundation. Please join me in welcoming this truly exquisite and psychologically astute writer to Teferit Talk. First of all, I have to say that it's a personal pleasure and an honor to have you here tonight, Um, Jessica. I've known you for years, and I have been a huge fan of your writing ever since your first story collection, Absent Without Leave. And it's especially, oh, it's an incredible book. It's one of my, it's one of the best short story collections I've ever read, and that is no exaggeration. So, Thank you. Um, as is your your second story collection, Please Come Back to Me, which received the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction and was published by the University of Georgia Press in 2010. And one reason we're so happy to have you with us here tonight is because your second novel, Lacey Eye, has just been published this month by Grand Central Publishing of the Hatchet Book Group. Um, and this is exciting for me and has to be even more exciting for you. It's getting wonderful reviews. Um, and uh, so we're gonna, we're, I'm going to have you read an excerpt from that in just a bit, but let me just finish giving a few more of your impressive credentials. Um, oh, you're also you, a professor. You're very nice. <laughs> oh, it's, all, it's all sincere, Jessica, truly. Um, you're a professor at Emerson College and you have received grants from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Massachusetts Cultural Foundation. Um, As I mentioned, you won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction and also the Zacharias Award from Plowshares for your first collection, Absent Without Leave. And as I mentioned, this new book, uh, Lacey Eye, um, I had ordered and sat down to read it and did not get up until I had finished it. It's um, truly a page-turner. Publishers Weekly called Lacey Eye a devastating portrait of a family torn apart from both the outside and within. And Good Housekeeping recommended it on this month's Fabulous Reads bookshelf column. 
And um, it's getting wonderful reviews. So if I could ask you to begin by having you read um, an excerpt from the book, that would be terrific. Uh, sure, I'd love to. And um, Donna, thank you so much. It's, you use the phrase personal pleasure and honor, and it's, it's mine, really. Um, I oh. thought I would just read a bit from the beginning of the book. Um, I've edited it a bit for time, but it will be um, the beginning, so I don't think there's too much context to have to explain. The detective was waiting for me when I arrived home from work. He sat in his own Civic, rather than an official police car, on the side of the driveway where Joe used to park. He might have been doing a crossword. I saw him lay down a folded section of the newspaper when I pulled in beside him. I swore, not at the sight of Thornburg, but because reporters from TV news vans were also waiting for me on the street in front of the house. They ran up the driveway with cameras as I stepped out of my car, but when I held my hand over my face and said that I was sorry but I couldn't talk to them, the detective moved forward and told them in his reasonable but no-nonsense voice that they needed to get off my property. Then he turned to me and nodded, a variation of an old-fashioned bow. I'd always been grateful for that quality in him, his politeness, the way he treated me with respect back then and didn't, like so many of them, seem to believe that I must have brought what happened to me upon myself. Although John had never been indicted, I knew that a lot of people who'd never even met me thought I was a terrible mother. Mrs. Shutt, he told me as we walked toward my back door together. Excuse me. I'm sorry to bother you. He was the only one of his staff who didn't call me by my first name from the very beginning. From that morning, they'd come in to find Joe dead on the stairs, and me was barely a pulse, beaten and bloody across our bed. In the way that matters most, they saved my life, but in another way, they destroyed it with the questions they asked before the ambulance rushed me away. I told the detective it was fine, this was not a bad time, and asked if he wanted to come in. He said, no thanks, it wouldn't take a minute, and then he looked down at his shoes before he continued, covering his mouth with his fist as he cleared his throat, a habit I'd become familiar with during the trial. I wanted to make sure you heard, he said, about the appeal. Appeal? I rubbed my forehead as jolts of pain darted behind my eyes. You're not going to tell me you didn't know this was up before the court today, are you? He pointed his thumb at the news trucks. What do you think they're doing here? I shrugged, feeling my shoulders shake. I tried not to pay attention. I didn't say that I purposely left the radio off in my car on the way home, afraid of what it might tell me, precisely because I did know what was going on. Thornburg said, well, you'd have to find out sooner or later. The court granted Petty's appeal for a new trial. I had not heard the name Petty spoken aloud in months. The sound of it made a flush rise up the back of my neck. He's not going to get out on bail, is he? Oh, no, absolutely not. No way would they give bail for a crime like this. He squinted in his rush to reassure me, and with a flood of dread in my gut, I could tell what was coming next. But Mrs. Shutt, Hannah, we want to put him away again as much as you do. Well, I shouldn't say that. Of course, you want it more. He coughed gently. Who is we, I said, though I already knew. The police and Gail Nazarian. She's worried he might walk this time, unless they can get a direct eyewitness to what happened. At the prosecutor's name, my temples folded in on themselves in a full-blown throb. Quietly, to keep the noise down in my head, I told Thornburg what I'd told him every other time before. I don't know anything more than what I've said already. I can't remember that night. And right after this is when Hannah learns that her daughter, who brought um, the convicted murderer into her life as a boyfriend, um, is planning to move back home. So that complicates her life. <laughs> um, yes, quite a bit. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's 
it's really a thriller. It's incredibly compelling, and um, it you. does, as, as you've indicated in the excerpt, it does revolve around a pretty horrific crime. And and I was wondering um, what led you to the idea for this novel. Well, it's actually um, inspired by a crime that did happen in my hometown um, outside Albany, New York, about 10 years uh-huh. ago, and it involved a college-age son who was convicted of uh, murdering his father and attempting to murder his mother, and he's in jail now, although he's still actually seeking different um, avenues of appeal. Um and I followed the news coverage somewhat because it had happened, you know, so close to home. And I was interested in the specific detail of the mothers having indicated to the police when they did find her very close to death that it was her son who had um, executed the attacks. Excuse me, I'm sorry about that. I told you at the beginning I have this whole yeah, sort of going around, yeah. so I do apologize for that. No um, problem. So she had originally implicated her son and then... Um, had uh, undergone some medical procedures and when she emerged from those said that she had no memory um, of that night and that he could not possibly have done it. And I've never doubted that she actually did lose her memory, but it was intriguing to me that in spite of all the uh, evidence that was presented at the trial and the jury took less than a day to convict him, that she has been able for years to um, kind of defend him and um, be his um, really staunchest supporter. And I think that remains true to this day. I did change, um, you know, from a son to a daughter. um, And kind of, I thought it was more interesting to um, explore the relationship between a mother and a daughter who had a boyfriend who might, you know, be prone to this behavior um, than kind of a direct, the direct uh, grown child being the one who would commit the crime. I thought that was more complex emotionally. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where it came from. And and you mentioned that that in that actual case, I didn't realize that that the mother had uh, initially implicated her son, and then later said he hadn't, um, and again ignored, you know, ignored the possibility that he might have, and um, right. this. This theme of denial is is so strong in in much of your writing. Um, I was rereading your collection and give you peace, and fell in love again with the story, the nurse in the black lagoon. I'm sorry, that's that's in. Um, please come back. It's, to it's, me. it's in. Um, please come back to me. But I I, I definitely forgive yes. you mixing the titles up. They're all very. Similar. That's all right, and I'm sorry. But um, in that story as well, a mother ignores the fact that her son may have done something bad in that particular case that he may have set fire to a playground. Right. Right. And and I'm just curious about this this theme of. Uh, it is something that we as human beings do, that we deny realities that are hard to face. And I'm curious, like, what draws you to that theme and why do you think we do that and uh, and what are the consequences of, of us doing that? Yeah, it's funny. You know how you, you write about things sometimes and you don't even realize that you have patterns or themes, but I do think that, that you're right that that is one of mine. Um, I'm just fascinated by the fact that uh, I think it, it it takes so much work um, in some ways to to deny things or to try to make things. I think if you let in something that's both true and difficult to accept, you're you're letting go of the thing that's easier or more comfortable or, in the case of Lacey, I prettier to accept. 
Um, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, I think you used the phrase hard to face. I mean, it's, it's, it's just easier sometimes not to, to do that. Um, I think the consequence is that, and I think it would probably people would do it much more often if there were no consequences, but, um, I think it's probably virtually impossible to do that without knowing that you're doing it. So I think on some level we must always be aware that we're either cheating ourselves or, you know, compromising ourselves or not acting in our own ultimate best interest. Um, You know, in the short term, I think we do it because it is more comfortable. But um, I think sometimes it's hard to realize that in the long term we have to make the more difficult choice. And as for why, I, I think I'm just fascinated by the idea that, you know, a lot of times we face things that are um, competing with each other in terms of values. So in the case of Hannah, you know, she has to decide uh, whether she's going to seek the truth about what happened that night um, or um, is she going to hang on to her daughter no matter what. And there are other complicated things um, in the in the novel, like maybe she has to choose between her daughters because the daughters are kind of at odds. But I think that that phrase to me that's useful is competing values, and I think it's fascinating that we all do face them, you know, a lot every day and have to make decisions about them. Choices, yeah, yeah. And and since this was based on an actual incident, in some regards, did did you? know that when you started writing the novel that you would end um in a certain way or did you um did you know where the novel was headed when you began writing you no know, i didn't i i started with um a vague sense which is the way it ended up but i actually did during the course of the years it took me to write it um write two different endings that were completely different from each other um hmm. and i was kind of um I did not sit down and outline the novel and what was going to happen because I really did start with the character and her conflict, um, the conflict that she felt inside about the the first thing she's presented with is, is she going to allow her daughter to come home and live with her? You know, that's kind of the first decision she has to make in terms of, um, you know, what's what's the best thing for me to do here. So I I wasn't sure. And I know some people, you know, begin with an ending in mind. And and, um, they say I wrote two different ones to kind of try them out, but I like the one that I ended up uh, up with better. I think it served Hannah as a character more than the, Mm -hmm. the other one did. And and you just mentioned that you did not write an outline for this novel, um, and that's another question that I was going to ask you, whether you, with your other novel, did you write an outline, or do you do more like going by the seats of your pants as you write? <laughs> well, um, actually, what I should have said if I didn't was that I didn't have an outline to start with. I, I don't know. I can't imagine writing a novel without writing some notes or some kind of an outline when you're in it, because... I mean, even if it's just as simple as keeping track of what's already happened and, um, you know, I, I think and where you might be going with it. I think um, I did end up writing a lot of pages that didn't end up in the book, but they I still did have, once I started the book, I would keep notes um, for myself and did have a kind of outline. So I would say that I didn't start with one, but so I, I did plot ahead of myself, but not from the beginning, if that makes any sense. Uh-huh. Yes, uh-huh. And and what about did you have to do research? I know that there are a lot of legal issues in the novel and did you talk to lawyers or I did. I had I actually did the legal or... Yeah, I did. I actually did um hire a, an attorney to do just a little bit of there's not that much, but I wanted to make sure I didn't get anything wrong and 
I suppose it's still possible I have something wrong. No one has pointed it out yet. I'm not inviting any listeners to tell me what's right. wrong, which I guess is a is a is a perfect example of lazy eye right there, denial. Right. Um, probably should know, but it is something that I wanted to um to get right. So there was a little some legal. I did some on my own, and then when I realized I wanted to know, you know, exactly what would happen in New York State in, in a certain situation, I asked. Um, someone to do it for me. And for medical, I did a small bit of just medical research on the condition that Dawn, the daughter, has had all her life, amblyopia or lazy eye. Um, Yes, and tell us a little bit about how you came up with the title of the novel, Lacy Eye. Yes, well, um, it was actually very simple. I had a lot of titles, working titles, that just really weren't working. They were just... um, you know, I, I put them on there so I would feel a little bit better about maybe coming up with a title someday, but it really was evading me. And then one day I was typing the words lazy eye and I made the mistake of typing lazy eye. So, uh, and I went up to correct it, you know, immediately. And before I could correct it, I pulled my hands away and I, I literally said out loud, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It was one of those moments where I knew that I had something, but I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I, I, within about a minute, I realized, oh, I think that this could be my title. Um, so I was, I was quite happy with it because to me, it is the theme of the book and the whole idea of making things prettier than they actually are. Um, which the father advises the young child, Dawn, when she's first diagnosed, you know, not to be. You have to call it what it is. To call it a lazy yeah. eye doesn't mean you're lazy, but it's called, it's called lazy eye, and she insists on telling her friends that she has a lacy eye. So lacy eye, yeah. Lacy eye. So then I wrote that scene into the the book once I had the so the title kind of came for the concept came from a mistyping, basically. So I, I I wish I could be that lucky, you know, with with all my stories, but at least it that's, happened once. That's a neat that's a neat story <laughs> on how the title came to be. Um <laughs> Uh, I think all of your books have wonderful titles, by the way. But so, so oh, now, of of your publications, you have two story collections and two novels. And I'm curious, um, do you go back and forth between the forms? Do you have a preference for one form <laughs> or another? And I, and I'm with someone who does prefer. both as well. I know that. <laughs> um, I do have a excuse me. I do have a preference. I prefer stories. I think I'm I'm personally better at stories and um the writer elizabeth mccracken i read recently had this wonderful quote she just won the story prize she writes both novels and stories and i think the quote was something like um a short story is a blow to the solar plexus and a novel is a lingering illness you might never recover from and i said that i believe she was describing the experience of reading them but Uh she may also have been and i i found myself resonating to it in terms of writing them because I really do feel with stories a little bit more excited working on them, and that may just be the nature of um, the fact that a novel is so attenuated, you know, and there's just that many more sentences that it's hard to be, you know, excited about each one. But I find personally that I I discover more, and it's more spontaneous with a story, even though I might sometimes use an outline, especially for a long one. But um, and I guess, excuse me, I have alternated but that's just kind of been by chance. Um, you know, I wrote the first collection because I had started my career publishing short stories, and then actually my my first novel was an expansion of the first story I ever had published. So those, those kind of went hand in hand, and then had been writing stories all along, and then, you know, did the novel. But I never thought of myself as a novelist, and I still 
primarily think of myself as a story writer. Yeah, and your first story was published in Hudson Review, I believe. Oh, you're good. Um, yes, and the, and then you've also since since then you have an uh, amazingly impressive um, list of publications in the Atlantic and Glimmer Train. Um, your works have been cited in Best American Short Stories many times. Um, well, and not that many, I know but I'll, I'll, I'll believe you. <laughs> all right. So, I know that. that when I first met you, you had talked about studying with Andre Debus, and um, I was curious um, if if there. And I know again, as I mentioned, that you're now a creative writing professor at Emerson College, so you are right. passing on the tradition of teaching people <laughs> how to write stories and and or novels. Um, so I was wondering if there was one piece of writing advice that Andre Dubu gave you that that you remember and would like to share, and also um, what if there's one piece of writing advice you give your students at Emerson. Well, I'd be happy to, and I think that Andre, even though he's not with us, would 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 not like it if I didn't tell people that his name is pronounced abuse and what he always said was it rhymes with abuse so <laughs> um but he he um and that was a, a long time ago he used to have a, an informal workshop at his house on Thursday nights um a bunch of us you know would go up to that so it wasn't like a formal class or anything people would read their work um out loud and then um get responses from people in the room um and i i I have thought about that sometimes are the specific things that Andre would say. Um, I think the main thing I take away from him is not so much a quote as just the sense that he always, I'm sure, wrote himself and would advise or encourage other people to write as cliche as it might sound, but from the heart. You know, if if it's not important to you, don't write it, don't bother, don't waste your time, don't waste other people's time. I think he believed that what people, um, were most interested in and most passionate about um, in their subject matter, you know, that that would show in the story. And I actually do think that if I, I don't, it's funny, I, I don't think of myself as, oh, I suppose I must give advice to the students all the time, but I think of it more as a, um, you know, we're all sitting around doing a workshop and everybody's commenting on each other's stories. But I think my advice to them would be similar, which is you don't write something because you think you should write it. And don't write it because, um you know, someone else thinks you should do it. Um, and I I also think of Flannery O'Connor's great quote, if you don't discover something from your stories, probably no one else will either. So um, you know, a lot of times students will feel right away that they need to write a novel. And, and sometimes it's quite clear um, that they haven't, they just haven't even, you know, mastered the basics of telling a story and, and um, they want to rush right ahead to, you know, to doing the novel. So I think that... Um, Really, the most important thing is to write what you do feel passionate about. Um, you know, that's that's what's going to get you excited. Um, and sometimes I have to remind myself of that. And it's tougher with a novel. I find it more difficult with a novel because it's just more of a slog, at least for me. Maybe it's not true for other people, but it's just um, more kind of wading through mud than, than flying, which sometimes the story can feel like. But um, mm-hmm. so I... I'm not just dispensing that advice to other people. I do have to remind myself sometimes, you know, find find my own excitement in what I'm writing about. And mm-hmm. sometimes easier said than done. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure that the answer to this would vary, but how how long did you spend on Lacey I writing it, and, and how long might a typical story take you? 
And again, I'm sure well, the answer will yeah, vary. But I have spent years. I have spent years on individual stories. So, um, Lucia started it in a very different form, kind of shortly after that trial. So it was probably maybe eight years ago. But you know, during that time, I also did put the please come back to me together and did you know set it aside for various reasons. So it's a little bit difficult for me to quantify. But it was it was definitely a number of years. Um, I think we we both know at least one person who writes a book a year. <laughs> uh huh. Right. Yep. Um, but um, I'm talking about our mutual friend Elizabeth Berg. I think exactly. there are others right. who do it Productive. too. And I don't I don't know how they how they do that. I just I can't even imagine it. So I will I will be the first one to confess if that's what it is that it takes me a very long time and I'm a very slow writer. Mm-hmm. And with stories too, have any of them just come out kind of full blown or? I have had a couple of those. Those are those are magical experiences. Just a couple where you know they've just kind of sailed out and then been done, which I, I suppose could happen with someone with a novel. Um, you know, um, but it you know you recognize when those things happen because they're so different from the other ones. Just a couple of times. Most of the times it's really. A lot of the times I don't know where a story is going to go or how it's going to end. So I, I I literally will set them aside for years because. I have learned, one thing I have learned is that there's no point in forcing an ending. I mean, when I say to myself, oh, I need to finish this story so I can send it out, that's, that doesn't work for me. I just, it, it won't come if I, if I try to force it. So I do have stories sitting around that I actually very much look forward to going back to. Mm-hmm. And, and you said that you're on sabbatical now. So are you finding more time to write this year? Well, just oh, absolutely. I mean, that's it's, that's a tremendous gift um, to have um, been eligible to apply for a sabbatical. You know, at the exact time that I um, needed to both promote Lacey Eye and um, write a second novel um, for Grand Central. Um, it's been it's it's been wonderful. I mean, it's it's. Uh, it's just I, I I almost can't find the words to describe it. I mean, I like. I like that sometimes there's something easy about having schoolwork and then writing because it's very defined. You know, I could sit down and do one and then set it aside and then, you know, go go full blast at the next. So, um, but being able to just devote my days to fiction writing is something I, I really never thought, you know, I would be able to do. I feel extremely lucky. That's great. And and I think I read that you will give yourself a 40-minute time period to write and then take a break and then go back for another 40 minutes? Or Yeah, well, I found that, that way. I mean, just as, um, I mean, not to sound too, you know, the, the older I get and the less time there is, ahead, I kind of I kind of value it more. So I, um, I think it would be much too easy for me to find other things that needed to be done if I didn't say to myself, you know, for this period of time, you're going to sit down and work and not, um, you know, do anything else. And uh, so my husband actually is, is um, the one who was doing that for himself, and I thought I would try it. And it actually, um, I was amazed at how much you can get done, I can get done, and I think it's probably true for most people, in uh, half an hour or 40 minutes, yeah. in a much shorter time than I would have thought. Isn't it amazing? I mean, yes. it's too easy like to just think, promise. oh, I only have half an hour, so I'm not even going to start. So this way, you know, it's just it's it's just I've I've found it a very useful tool, the timer. Yes, I would agree. The Pomodoro timer, I sometimes use that and set it for 25 minutes, and you know, you and you get, get a lot done. I'm sure. Yes, yes, yeah. it's true. Yeah. It's good. 
And I, you, you are writing a second novel for Grand Central Publishing Group. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, or is it too early um, sure. a stage? Or? Sure. No. I, well, if it's if it's early, I'm in trouble because it's, it's you know technically due in December. <laughs> so I actually oh, okay. you know, I've been working okay. on it since. Um, so um, it's different from my first two novels. First, in that it's not based on a crime in my hometown, and <laughs> secondly, that it's um, it's told in the third person each of my these two novels um, my first two has been told in the first person and this one is told from the third person perspective of four different characters so I'm hoping that's not too many um, but it's four characters um, in a small town in western Massachusetts and it surrounds the um, apparent drowning death of a teenage girl um, uh-huh. so there's a, you know there's a lot of things that go on but those are that, that's essentially what it's about well, I know I will look forward with great pleasure to reading that book too. Well, thank um, you, Donna. Very kind. And and I just I wanted to um mention in here that 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 Lacey I um I mean I th- I think before Lacey I you have been primarily known as a literary author at a very high level. And Lacey I is intriguing to me because Again, as I said, it was a one one sitting reading, and it's a real page turner um, and, and a, a psychological thriller. But even within that possibly more commercial a- appeal, it still shows your skill at presenting incredibly um, complex portraits of human beings. Um, with oh, all Donna, of our, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, Sorry. and 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 you know, with all of our strengths and weaknesses, and. Um, I, I found a quote that Don Lee of Plowshares wrote about when when you were given the Zacharias Award for your first book, and he wrote that you quote compel us to look at all of her characters in the same light, allowing for the common fatal flaw of being human. Um, and again, to me, this is such such a huge. Um, strength and beauty of your writing and i i know that you got a degree in journalism and not psychology but i i'm just i'm curious if you have an answer to um where this deep insight into people may come from um whether oh, it's your I, life I, experiences or reading or well thank you for the question you couldn't give me a nicer compliment than that maybe it combines this book commercial with literary appeal. Um, I I think just like most any, you know, fiction writer, I just love to observe people and imagine being inside them. So I've just had more practice, you know, I've had more years of practice than, than some people at this point. And, um, you know, maybe I've gotten better at it than I used to be, but I, I very much appreciate the question and the context of it. Thank you, Donna. Well, um, I, I truly. Oh, also, I want to know if you have. Um, I know you've been doing some readings in Massachusetts and did a radio interview in Albany. Um, and if there's anything else upcoming or reviews, anything that you'd like to share with our listeners. I think the, um, the only event I have right now um, after this month, um, which has been quite busy, is uh, Sunday, April 19th. Um, in Westport, Mass., I'll be doing an event with John Tripp, um, the fiction writer, um, in uh, at Partners Village Store um, at 3:30. Um, I, I I do have a website that and it's listed on events there in case anybody's interested. I'm looking forward to that. 
Yes, and your web, website is www.jessicatreadway.com, and That's we've got right. it up on our chat room here, too. Um, and Lacey I, we've got a link for people to buy Lacey I or your other books. Um, so, Thank you so I could much. talk to you all evening, Jessica. Um, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll just, just have to keep doing it, but we'll do it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But thank you so much for this. Thank you, and Donna. I. Very grateful. Truly urge people to buy not only Lacey I, but Absent Without Leave and um, Peace Be With You and all four of your books. So uh, a truly magnificent writer. And thank you so much. For, and I wish you all the best with this book, which truly is combining literary writing and commercial appeal. So may, thank you very may much, it sell Donna. many copies. <laughs> thank right. you so much. Thank you, Jessica. Good night. Good night. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's Tefera Talk as much as I have. The show will be archived and accessible for later listening on our website at www.teferatjournal.com. You're invited to join our global community of writers there and to subscribe to our quarterly literary magazine. While on the website, you can also order a copy of our first Tefera Talk book of transcribed interviews with Robert Pinsky, Ed Hirsch, Julia Cameron, and more. Special thanks for this and all our shows to R.J. Jeffries, Udo Hintz, and Melissa Studdard. Please join us at Tefera Talk next month when we interview poet Dorian Lowe on Wednesday, April 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. In the meantime, all of us at Teferit wish you and the world a meaningful and creative peace. May we all embody Teferit in our lives, a loving heart, wise compassion, and a tolerant reconciliation of opposites. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.